Good morning. It's great to be back, Horizon, again. And uh, this old thing, older, I'm upper middle age, <laughs> is interesting. Years ago, Ruth and I went to see one of her cousins, an extended cousin by marriage back in Illinois, and walked into a nursing facility. The guy was 83 years old. And I said, Elmer, have you lived here in Champaign-Urbana all your life? And he grinned at me and said, not yet. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's the track we're on. Just a little caveat at the front end. We, we have three friends who showed up here just who are college classmates. So we were all young together, now we're older together. Don and Marianne Stavros from here in Portland area and Alan Randolph, a pastor and dear friend from San Antonio, Texas. Could you just wave right over there? You don't have to stand up. Could you welcome them to Horizon? Been friends for a lot of years. So we're gonna talk about generations this morning. Generations is a big deal in our culture. We have, um, I have younger guys like in their 20s who will come to me every now and again and say, would you mentor me? And mentor was a language we didn't even use 20 years ago and now we're talking about it all the time. And all. So we have a lot of shifting among the generations. And um, I was born in Alameda, California on St. Patrick's Day, 1942. You already heard that. And um, here's a verse that I think relates to that. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. What do you think about that? Well, I, you know, when I think of a God who is generational, um, you know, you can't put an age on God. You know, he talks about forever and eternal. And I have trouble thinking about God anyway because he has no beginning and everything I know, everything I can get my mind around has a beginning. I can sort of get the no end thing. You know, at least I'm, <clears throat> I'm thinking, well, I'll go on forever, however that looks. But the no beginning piece is a little hard. But I, when, when I think of generations and God, I think that he is reaching out across the years we talk about going into the whole world and preaching the Gospels, and we think in ethnicity, ethnicities and geopolitical boundaries, but I think he looks vertically as well through the generations, from the youngest to the oldest. So that's what I'm, I'm thinking. Okay, well, I'm going to read my scripture. Dad wanted us to start out with our ages and what year we were born, and I'm not doing that. So <clears throat> I'm a lot younger than he is. Let's just Way say that. Younger. Um, I was younger before you came, and then now it just... I know, I sucked the life out of you. That's what children do. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Yes, so I'm going to read from Psalm 91. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What do you think about that? What do you think of when you think of that? I think of the generations kind of as a foundation. Uh, that God has given us to build upon. I love the Josh Groban song where he says, I am, I am strong when standing on your shoulders. And I kind of think of you and grandma and grandpa and um, you and mom and what you've given us and what you've laid down for us and how you've shown us how to live and how you passed what you believed and what's important to you down to us. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think of when I think of generations. Um, 
I'm going to ask you this one. What are some of the people, or who are the, some of the people who left fingerprints? Oh, no, that's not what I'm going to ask you. Sorry. Let's mark that one off. <laughs> you can ask me that one. I'm going to ask you a different one. Okay. What's your earliest memory of anything connected to God? When I was three and a half years old, my parents went to a missions conference, and a single lady missionary stood up and said, I want a man. And everyone's going, whoa, you know. And uh, she said, I want a man for India. That was 1945, 44, something like that. Actually, I was a little younger. Anyway, my parents went to India's missionaries in 1945. My first year in school was at four. I started school at four in a British boarding school up in the tea plantations of South India, 7,000 feet. They had chapel, and they, on Sundays, we went down to a church. It was a, a general Protestant church in the town of Kunur. And I, when you asked me the question, I thought of crocodile, because we would hold hands, you know, in, in twos. We saw this in Eugene the other day when we were driving downtown. This little preschool class was coming across the street with all the preschool workers, and the kids are holding hands two by two. And I said, that's a crocodile. We used to come down the mountain a mile to this Union Church, and that was my first sort of exposure to God. And then there was a chapel service where when I was seven, the teacher who'd given the little talk, she said, um, Anybody who wants to know more about Jesus at the end of this chapel, go to the principal's office. Well, the principal's office is like a huge hurdle to the kingdom of God, you know. But that, that was my first connection. How about you? Um, I have a, a real vivid memory. Mom and dad planted a church in Urbana, Illinois, near the University of Illinois. And um, I remember being in church a lot. And I have a memory of sneaking out of Sunday school and running down the hallway and throwing open the doors to the sanctuary and running straight down the middle aisle up onto the platform to be with you. Well, there you go. And I was very surprised that you weren't as happy to see me as I was to see you. <laughs> when we started having children, you know, when, when Ruth had the first one, Erica, Erica wave over there, when she had, when she had the first one, they, she was in the front row. Then she had Jenny. Jenny, could you wave over there? And she moved back and then she had Sue, she moved a little further back. By the time we got to Chris, she was in the back row. Seriously. She, but Susanna would get loose and come sliding down under the pews. And I could tell where she was because people were going, whoo, you know, as she came by. And say, is that very godly? No, but it is life. It, it, well, it might fun. be godly. You uh, you know, I think I'm he saying. gets loose and comes and surprises. Yeah. And... Probably my first connection with God on my own was um, during a vacation Bible school. And I remembered a puppet show, and the puppet asked if I wanted to ask Jesus into my heart. And I thought, yes, I do. And so I asked Jesus into my heart, and the first person I told was Mom. So um, I came into the service, the sanctuary afterwards, and I told her I had asked Jesus into my heart. So we went home, and we got out my neat kid's Bible with illustrations, and in the front it, we put down July 6, 1976, that I asked Jesus into my heart. Very cool. So who... I'll ask you the question, who, who left their fingerprints on your soul that changed your worldview or shaped a view of Jesus or shaped a few of yourself going forward? I think for me, it was um, for sure you and mom. Um, some of the other people that really did were grandma and grandpa Blakely, that's my mom's parents. And when we moved from Illinois to California, we we're only two hours away from grandma and grandpa. And so I think we would go there at least once a month mm -hmm. and we couldn't 
hardly stand it. It took so long to get there. And uh, Grandma and Grandpa lived at the end of the street, and then we had three aunts and uncles all down the road. And so it was just like cousin heaven when we would get there. But as soon as we would get to Grandma and Grandpa's house, we'd throw the door open, and I remember them sitting at the kitchen table, and Grandpa would just get excited. Woo-hoo-hoo! <laughs> and, uh, and then he would start talking to Grandma like we weren't there and say, Mother, did you, have you seen this girl, Susanna? She's just terrific. I just love her so much. And, and uh, they would do that about each of the kids. And I, I was always thinking, they don't know me. They don't know what I've done. You know, I wanted to start <laughs> confessing right then. And, you know, but they always had you that. Ne- just... You never told them about the stuff you stole? Or... No, I didn't. No, 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 I kept that to myself. I wanted to, but I kept it in. And um, I just think that there was that unconditional love, you know, and they didn't ever sit us down and, and just talk to us about Jesus, but they just lived it, you know, whether it was we were going to church and doing the Easter egg hunt or we were helping take day-old bread over to the Russian families that they had helped immigrate from Russia. I mean, they just, they just lived it, and it was made an impression on me. And then another... Um, probably a really important time in my life when you and mom um, impacted me was I shared this at the women's retreat that um, I had gone through a rough rough patch uh, in college and I had decided maybe I didn't really want to follow Jesus even though you know I was in Bible college and you were the president I was um, <clears throat> we, need I thought to maybe, talk. we need to talk later yeah uh, well I thought maybe I could do better you know, I had better plans than, you know, what you or God had for me. And so I tried that out for a while, and it was pretty disastrous. And um, I got myself into a place where I was failing all my classes. I had developed an eating disorder. And um, I knew that I woke up one morning and that I needed help, and I, I did need Jesus really bad, and I needed you and Mom to help me. And so I remember having to go into your bedroom, and they were laying on the bed, and I just crawled up um, in between them, and I told them everything that was going, that was going on, and what I was doing, and I was making myself sick every day, and um, I don't, I can't make myself not cry at this part, but they just told me that they loved me, that they were gonna help me, and then there weren't any questions, it was just that unconditional love, and so I think for me, the people that impacted me most were the ones who loved me the most. I have a friend in D.C., and I told her that if she made me cry here, we were going to not do this ever again. This is the first time. It's the first time we've ever done this. This may be the last time. But the, but the uh, I have a friend in D.C., Mark Batterson, who he's an author as well, and he's written uh, he's written a number of things and pastors a church there. But he has a line that he uses, a phrase, not a line, a phrase that he uses that God loves us when we least deserve it and least expect it. And I think there's a, there's a power in that. I think the same person, my father-in-law, Ruth's dad, I met Ruth's father when I was 10 years old. I didn't know Ruth existed, but I was at a kid's camp. He was 38, and he did a kid's camp in Northern California. He dressed up like an army guy with a helmet and fatigues and a 38, rov- excuse me, 38 revolver on his hip, which is always good for kid's camp. And, <laughs> and, he, and he too had a dummy. Maybe we have a genetic thing about dummies, I'm Puppets, thinking. Puppets, they're and, good. Good for the Lord. And, 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 uh, and um, when I later, eight, well, 10 years later, went to ask for her hand in marriage, my parents' own thing was sort of coming apart and I was scared about that, and he just said, Foth, here's the deal. Why don't you just love Ruthie and follow Jesus, and Opal and I will love you and Ruthie. We'll walk together. It'll be okay. I trust you. And there's, there's something about that 
that unconditional acceptance at a moment when I don't accept myself, which is really powerful. When I don't like me and somebody else chooses to, there's something powerful about that. And I, I just, uh, I get that. Yeah. What do you think about, since we're talking about generations, what are some of the hindrances that can come or the hard parts in communicating with each other? One of the interesting things about Ruth is that she has a gift for three-year-olds. Uh, she says, my gift is with preschoolers and Dick's gift is with the 18 to 30-year-old crowd. So when three-year-olds come to our house, they walk past me like I'm a piece of furniture. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Straight to grandma or mom. Because she will get down on the floor and play Lego and do puzzles like by the hour. See, my attention span with a three-year-old is the same as theirs. It's like three <laughs> minutes. But Ruth will just do the, and, and this impact that she has just by engaging in their world. And of course, that's the Jesus model. You know, here's God who comes into our world, gets down on the floor, and does what we, that's a huge piece. But I think identifying with someone else's world is the key to communication with him or her. That's, that's one piece. I think the other piece is communicating at, at various levels, and we can talk more about this in a minute. But we, we live in a culture, in a, in a world, that is always communicating. Some of you, as I'm talking, are doing emails. Some of you are texting each other or getting the March Madness scores. You know, so <laughs> it's okay, it's all right, keep, keep going with it, it's all right. But, but understand that, that we live in a world where we're getting multiple messages all the time. To me, that's the biggest hindrance to communication. It's called communication. It's called the social media revolution. But it is, in fact, I think, a distraction too often to relationship. Hmm. And that the, the idea that I have inputs from all these sources, many of which are not true. The reason MTV wants input into our kids' lives is not because they have their, our kids' welfare. <laughs> they want a dollar. This is about money. This is not about wholeness. This is about money. Almost any of the stuff that comes at us, anyway, it, I think the hindrance to communication is that we get scattered. What are you, what are you thinking? I think a lot of it has to do with um, how we come at things or what we value, what the different generations value. Because for me, I remember talking to someone in ministry when Scott and I were first coming into it, and um, one of the key things this friend told me was, what you need to do is you just need to hold yourself like a swan. Like, just make sure that no one knows what's going on. You just keep going. Make sure everything is looking good. And that doesn't work for me. So I would much rather be real. I want to know what's going on in your life. I want, you know, that authenticity to be there. That's what, that's how I can communicate. If you can't tell me what's going on, if you can't be real with me, then we don't have a connection. I think I hear that more from younger people, 20s and 30s, than any other single thing. I want what's authentic because they live in a world of make-believe. They live in a world of images and created stuff and stuff. Our grandkids, at least our, our grandkids back in Colorado, have this app 
on their phones or iPad or iPod or someone, one of those i things, which says a lot. But I, and, and I have that. I got an iPhone, I got an iPad, and I, you know. But the, but the, the they, they have this app where they say, Grandpa, can we take a picture of you? And I say, sure. And they take a picture of me sitting in the chair and they go over and fool around and come back and they say, see, and they show me the picture and I'm sitting here sort of fat, dumb, and happy. And all of a sudden, <laughs> like a shell or a, like a salvo of something comes and blows me up. <laughs> Anybody have that app at your house? Where they, it's, a very, it's a very cool app. You know, they, Sammy, our grandson, he's got that app. Or a boulder comes out of the sky and goes smack. The, you know, it's like... It's like Wile E. Coyote or something. And, and, but, but the line between an imaginary world and a real world is blurred in this culture. And so when a young person says, I want what's real, I want what, what is tangible and touchable and that will take me further down the road in my life, because my whole, my whole life becomes um, a a virtual world, if I'm not careful. Yeah. I think that's true. So, you need to own up so, to your stuff right now. Just do it. Lay it all out in front of the people. I, we're on tape. I don't think I'm going there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What, what do my grandchildren, our grandchildren, need for from us to encourage them in their own faith? I think what they need from you more than anything is you, that they need to be around you. Um, I think for, for us growing up, the fact that we got to be with grandma and grandpa, we got just that sense of consistency. Every time we went there, it was the same thing. You know, We knew they loved us. We knew we were going to go pick peaches in the orchard. We knew we were going to go to Al's grocery store and get candy. You know, There was just that consistency that was there and that just groundedness. Of, of love and fun that we are going to have. And I think that has been conveyed through you and mom too. I think that any time that we get together, uh, just this weekend, we were all at Erica's house and um, grandma was asked to make big rounds. And those are like crepes. They have butter and sugar and really lovely, not healthy at all, but we love them and we eat them almost every day when we're together. And um, that's just something that mom has always done. So the kids know if we're going to see grandma, whether grandma's coming to our house or we're going to your house, we're having big rounds. Or if they're hanging out with with grandpa, that they're going to get stories. Because my dad, the first time, well, not the first time, but he and mom went to India for three weeks when we were little kids, and he taped stories about Ugalek, an orange orangutan. Was he orange? Yeah, orange. Yeah. And, and he had sisters. Filling up and philodrip. Yeah. yeah. They, they were, were blue. blue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but so we would listen to those every night while they were gone. And so that's a tradition that's kind of carried on into our family. And I think it's so valuable because they're just getting to hang out with you. Like that's, they're getting all your stories. They're getting to know about you, but they're getting to know about your grandma and grandpa. They're getting to know about the things that you did in college. They're getting to see all of these different things. And vicariously, they're finding out who they are and where they've come from because of what you've done. They get to know who they are. Because our identities come from parents and grandparents and others who are older. Even if they're not biological, that those linkages come in that, in that way. Uh, Ruth has a younger sister named Mary, and she and her husband had seven boys under the age of 12. 
you're supposed to say, ooh, <laughs> and, uh, at that point. I walked into their house one day when, when the boys were that age, and, and Mary, who's very petite, just had a glaze over her eyes. And I said, how you doing, Mary? And she said, I'm sorry, Dick. And I said, what for? She said, I don't know, I'm just sorry. You know? <laughs> this has happened. But they had a game they played with their boys where when they put the boys down to bed, like once a week or so, they'd say, pick a word. And so the, the, the boys would pick like horse or or airplane or some word and then the parents would have to tell a story from their childhood about whatever that was and in that way they learned their identity so there are all these generational pieces that kind of go together in that way so you're saying presence and tradition not traditionalism but traditions right things that are symbolic for the well, relationship kids love consistency well, actually, I love consistency, but it makes me feel safe. And so when we know we're with grandma and grandpa and we're doing the same thing, you know, we're getting that feeling of safeness and security. See, and I think for these generations, because generations are much closer together, it used to be like 20 years was a generation or 25. Now, 21-year-olds don't listen to the same music that 19-year-olds listen to. I mean, it's just you know, these, it's being compressed with the speed of culture and life getting so rapid to have something that is stable mm -hmm. is, uh, is almost an anomaly. It's, it's almost something that, that's, that's uh, unheard of in a, in, a certain, in a certain way. But that, that idea of stability and consistency is a, is a, huge, is a huge piece. What about um, what kind of wisdom do you have to offer me as a child uh, not as a child well as your child, as your child. raising uh, your child. grandchild yeah. yes. in this culture you know i think um, some of you have taken science classes and you know what a petri dish is a petri dish is where you put uh, some kind of germ or some kind of bacteria or whatever and you grow a culture they they they, they call it a culture i think culture shapes us more than principles on the refrigerator. I think culture, the general affect or atmosphere, shapes us. So the question is, how do you create atmosphere? One of the reasons we have worship music is in part, it's to get our eyes off of us toward the Lord, create an atmosphere that when the word is preached in, in this, that it's, it's receptive soil. I mean, that's part of the idea behind worship. But listen to how scriptures say this in uh, Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, fourth verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is what Jesus did when challenged about what's the greatest commandment. He quoted this and added mind. He was talking in part to a Greek audience. And so he adds, with your whole being, love God. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. If you go to a hotel in Israel today and you walk into your room, room 322 of the Tiberius Hilton or whatever, up on the doorpost on the side of the door is a mezuzah, is a piece with Torah in it. Literally, they put it on the doorposts. The priests literally bound it on their foreheads and put it on their hands. And what this text tells me is create an atmosphere where relationship is valued generationally, where Jesus is at the center, 
and where we know there's prayer going on. I think those three pieces are really huge. That these are my children, but if we're friends when they're small, we get to be friends when they're older, whatever age you are. We're, we're still, we get to be friends. I like you. Yeah, thank you. And so the, the friendship component, even though I have a parental responsibility, that goes both ways. So when it says honor your father and mother, well, when you're young, you do that by obeying them. When they're older, you do that by taking care of them. Nice hint. There you go. Just tossing it, just tossing it out there, you know. And, and you know, it's, it's a two-way street. So where there's an atmosphere of acceptance and love and it's safe, both in the parental home and the grandparental home, mm-hmm. that's, a huge, that's a huge piece. And, um, well, I think that's, that's all for the moment. That's good. Well, I think probably a lot of people here are thinking, well, they just have a perfect family. You know, they have it all worked out. They know how it, how it all needs to be. And that's not true. No. No. But um, why don't you tell them a little bit about your childhood and, and your growing up? I grew up in a pastor's home, as I, as I already said. But when I was in junior high in Oakland, California, it got tense at my house. I could tell it was tense between my parents. And there would be sniping and sideways comments. And not physical abuse, but there was this verbal parrying and jabbing. And, and when I was in high school... Um, I can remember we had a small bungalow kind of house in East Oakland. I can remember going to sleep in my bedroom and listening to my parents argue. They went from a double bed to twin beds and they would go back and forth. I could hear it every night and the one had to have the last word. And, and that's, the, that's the, Im, the impression that I had. That was the atmosphere that I grew up with, this sort of disconnect between what happened here and what happened at our house. And it wasn't that they were terrible people, they were good people, but there was this breakdown in the capacity to communicate what I think, feel, and know, the piece I talked about earlier. And so when, when I married Ruth, six weeks after college, and three weeks later loaded up the 1960 Corvair that I got in the deal. Anybody remember what a Corvair is? Yeah, yeah it was very cool. And we headed to grad school in Illinois. It was like Grapes of Wrath headed east. And, uh, but four months after we got there, I got a letter from my father saying he was leaving my mother after 29 years of marriage. And I'm saying, you know, that's not supposed to... This was in the 60s. This was before divorce was as common as it is now and certainly not in pastoral family. But how many of you know that life is what happens when you expected something else. And it's not neat and it's not always tidy and stuff happens, that's just how it is. And so I had a choice to make. I had a choice to say, well, this is genetic. I guess it's in my DNA and if I marry somebody, it's going down the drain and that's how it is. Or how does relationship really work? And if I could get a handle on that, maybe that would help me. And so we made a decision. And it hasn't been easy because I have some of the tendencies from my parents. You know? Well, I don't remember you guys really arguing growing up, which was kind of sad for me when Scott and I got married because the first time we had a disagreement, I thought we were getting divorced. Well, you know, the first time I raised my voice with Ruth, she started crying. And, you know, boys are taught. You don't cry unless you lose a leg or something. You know, you don't. So when she started crying, I'm thinking, what's going on? And her father... Roy, the guy that we like so much, 
He was always steady. He never raised his voice. She never heard him raise his voice. And he was calm and I hated him. You know, he just, you know. But you, you learn each other's stuff when you, when you do yeah, that. Yeah, we didn't so, get divorced. We're good. No. So, like so far, so good. And Ruth, you know, we'll be 49 years this summer, so, so far, so good. But the, but the idea, the idea of committing to each other and saying, we're going to talk this out, we're going to work this out, we're going to work this through, that's both marital and it's generational. Let, let me just make a comment real quickly here. At least half of you, maybe more, maybe two-thirds here, have gone through some brokenness in marriages, in parental marriages, in your own stuff, in your kids, whatever. And you say, you know, how does this work for me? Because this is not, you know, it's not idyllic. And ours, our deal isn't idyllic, but it's good. Yeah. And I think to be able to say that God cares for us more than we care for ourselves. You read this book, it is full of brokenness. It's full of broken people, broken relationships. And the challenge keeps coming back. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Wherever you are right now, love him with your whole heart right here, right now. And love those who are closest to you right here, right now. Let me, let me just make this observation. That intention in relationship, not tension, but intent in relationship, in terms of communication, is huge. Um, Ruth and I, you know, get in a car and drive out here. We came in Amtrak, actually, and then we drove up here. And we do that because we intentionally want to be with kids and grandkids. And we're at an age where we are a little more free to do that. But if we didn't have the resources to do that or couldn't get them, then we would call or we'd Skype. Skype, for those of you who are older, that's where you can see yourself, right on the computer screen. And it'll make your nose look larger than it is. But I'm just telling you, that's what somebody came to me after first service and said there's a thing called Uvu on Skype where you can get your whole family. And everybody can Skype in at the same time. I've That's never cool. heard, you know. So, you know, I, th I think we have to decide what it is that's important to us and how that works. Excuse me, go ahead, Sue. I was just listening to you. Oh. Well, anyway, I think, I think the, Lord's worked, the Lord's worked in our lives to help heal because part of it is, part of it is, not all of it, is that we chose at some point to say, we're going to work on this. And Ruth has put up with a lot from me in order to make that piece work. But I think over time, it has, it has come out so it works better. And also, as you age, you get tired. So you just don't do that as much anymore, whatever that was. So. <laughs> well, I think, too, just in regards to that, that anybody can be the, the starting point, can be the one who starts the good foundation for the family. Yeah. You know, I mean, my husband, Scott, he came from a pretty distressed family himself. His dad was an alcoholic and his mom was a believer. And he saw what life was like without Jesus and what it was like with Jesus. And he's the best dad ever besides you. Well, no, 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 we're good. <laughs> we're good. But so I think that it doesn't have to be that you have these layers, you know, that you're building on for your family. You can choose to be the, that first layer that gets built upon. Generally in the church, and we're going to wrap this up, generally in the church, what a gift we can be to those single moms and dads that come and bring their kids here. And if you're a single mom, 
I'd just like to stand up and cheer you and say thank you for being here and bringing your children. If you're a single dad and there, yeah, you can do that. If you're, if you're a single dad, and, and there are more single dads today in this regard, and you're here, same deal. It's challenging enough to try to do it together, but the, the three institutions that were huge in my life growing up were the church, the home, and the school, and they sort of worked together. Today, those institutions are essentially not gone, but they have way less impact in our individual lives than they did before and so we're trying to scramble to find ways to put that together and when when a single mom comes here and a surrogate grandparent comes in and helps that's just tremendous even though we weren't single we we were away from home we were in illinois and we had older people in the congregation grandma farrell yeah <clears throat> she had butterscotch candy in her purse she was my favorite there you go and at red and button red and they had big red gum see Candy and big red gum can shape the kingdom of God. Candy I'm telling and puppets. You. Candy and puppets working together can bring children to the Lord. This is a whole new theology. <laughs> I love this. Well, we got to wrap up. Let me, just, let me just share two words. One is uh, culture. It's the culture of the kingdom over against everything else. I would encourage us not to be a responsive culture, but to be a preemptive strike culture. That the kingdom of God is the one that goes on forever. And when we do whatever it is to bring the kingdom of God into our lives, into our houses, into our families, into our blended families, into our dysfunctional families, whatever it is to bring the kingdom of God real and live, that's what we want to do. The second thing is intent. People say my core values are biblical core values. And I say, show me your checkbook and show me your calendar and I'll tell you what your core values are. Where you spend your time, where you spend your money, that's where you're spending your life. That's where it is. So to align my time and my money with what I want in terms of generational handoffs, whether it's my biological family, whether it's the church world, whatever it is, that's a huge deal. Thank you for letting Susanna and me be here yeah. with you, Suzanne and I. We, uh, this is the first time we've ever done this. We, we, um, we'd, we'd like to think that it's informative and helpful, <laughs> but we don't know. Because when you're, <laughs> when you're up here, you have no idea what people are hearing. But I just want to encourage you that the God of all creation, who is from generation to generation faithful, this is the same God that's here at Horizon that was in the pages of the Psalms. Mm -hmm. The same spirit that was in Moses when he received the Ten Commandments is the same spirit that's in you. The same spirit that was on Elijah when he, when he called down fire from heaven is the same spirit that's from generation to generation. And